Today, as I continue in the book of John, I'm reading from John 17, verses 20 through 23. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. In John chapter 17, we get the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. First, he prays that the glory that God has given him will be revealed to the world so that the world may come to eternal life. Second, he prays for the 11 disciples minus Judas, for their protection, that the world, not, not their protection physically, not that they were going to, you know, avoid uh, being beaten or clubbed or, or imprisoned. That was going to happen. The protection was that the world would not penetrate their souls and warp their values, and that the evil one would not get inside of them. And then he prays for us. For all who believe in Jesus in the centuries following his death and resurrection, he prays, you know, when he's praying for two billion people right now. He's praying for you and he's praying for me. That we, despite our different languages, nations, ethnicities, genders, temperaments, different tastes, different hobbies, different politics, he prayed that we would be one. And that our oneness with each other would reflect the oneness that Jesus had and has with his Father, now made possible to us through his Spirit. We are called to koinonia, Spirit-filled, Spirit-created community with each other. We are called to receive Christ's love into our hearts and pass it to others who share Christ's love and Christ's Spirit in their hearts. Christ's community is where he most directly meets us. That, those are Jesus' words. He says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there his presence becomes more profound, there his presence becomes more revealed. Christ himself has been experiencing community with his Father and the Spirit throughout eternity. Community is rooted in the very being of God. Dallas Willard puts it like this, God's aim in human history is the creation of an inclusive community of loving persons with himself as the primary sustainer and most glorious inhabitant of that community. God created human beings because he wanted to create a world to join with him and share what the three in one are sharing now and have always shared. In other words, God's inviting us to the party. He's inviting us to the dance that the Spirit and the Son and the Father have known forever. Together, Jesus meant for us to relate to each other with the same love, the same delight, the same joy Jesus does with his Father. He said, the way we're one, Lord, help them be one. He wants us to experience here on earth what heaven already knows. To be a part of this is why you were born. A person was traveling through the south and stopped at a restaurant. And while he was there, he, 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 uh, he grew up in Michigan and so he saw something strange on the menu. He saw this word spelled grits. And then he asked, he didn't know what they were. So he asked the waitress, what is a grit? 
And her response was typically Southern. Honey, she said. By the way, all waitresses in the South are required by law to address all customers as honey. <laughs> honey, you can't order a grit. <laughs> they don't come by themselves. They're a package deal. Guess what? We are like grits. We don't taste good in isolation. And by the way, grits don't taste good anyway. <laughs> I don't know who thought that creating a tasteless, colorless blob of something was a good idea. That's Jesus' message. He looks at us and says, honey, you don't come by yourself. We must belong to something larger than ourselves. It's called family. It's called friendship. It's called church. We need it because none of us is a grit. Remember the story of creation? Over and over, God is making planets, making stars, making, making land, making oceans. And over and over again, you hear the phrase, and God saw that it was good. But there, even in Eden, in all its perfection, God said there is one thing here that is not good. He looks at the man, perfect in every way. He's not the problem. Living in a perfect environment, that's not the problem. Who had perfect communion with God, and that's not the problem. No. What is the one thing that was not good? He said it is not good that the man is alone. The human I created, the Adam, needs another human to relate to. The human needs not just fellowship with God, but with other humans like himself. God, according to the writer of Genesis, not only has put a God-shaped void in our hearts for himself, he has put a human-shaped void in our hearts for each other too. We need each other. Whether we like it or not, we need each other. Only community with God and each other completes us. Christ's community is what we were created for. And if we don't have real community, no amount of money or success or achievement can make up for not having it. In the 20th and 21st centuries, we, we see stories littered all over the place of miserable successes. Howard Hughes, J. Paul Getty, John Rockefeller, the list is endless. I have never known anyone who was terrible at relationships, who has lived a meaningful, joy-filled life. Not one. And I promise you, you haven't either. No, as Mother Teresa said before her death, she said that loneliness is the modern leprosy of Western civilization. In our culture, loneliness is common for women. It is epidemic for men. It is estimated that 90% of all men in this nation lack a true friend that they can share anything with. 90% of the men do not have a single friend. They have acquaintances, they have people they work with, they have a family they love, but most men do not have that. No matter what we do or what we accomplish, in the end, what we inevitably discovered is that what matters most is who we have loved and who loved us. People who love deeply and well, who have friends they can laugh with, cry with, lean on, fight with, and come out better for it, are the ones who live magnificent lives by that measure, is your life magnificent? And not only that, they live longer lives. Studies have shown that people who don't eat right, or people who do not exercise at all, or people who drink too much, 
but have strong relationships and deep friendships live longer than people who take meticulous care of their bodies. What I'm saying is backed up by science, that I'm healthier eating chocolate pie every day with a friend than you are eating broccoli alone. <laughs> by the way, if there's anything worse than grits, it's broccoli. <laughs> Broccoli's Cooked broccoli smells like a dirty sock that's been left in the hamper a week. That's what it. Now listen to me, kids. Your your parents may may want you to eat broccoli. You you do that despite the fact it smells. Okay. In another study reported by the Journal of American Medical Association, 276 volunteers were infected with a virus that produced the common cold. The study found that people with strong relational connections did four times better fighting off a cold than the, those who were isolated and lonely. People who were friendly and had strong connections produced less mucus in their life, which proves unfriendly people are snottier than friendly people. <laughs> of course, the unfriendly people right now are probably thinking, that's not true. I'm a... a I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm weak. I couldn't resist. A great irony is that we have more ways to communicate with each other than ever. And we are still lonely. We tweet, we email, we Instagram, we text. It turns out technology promises to help us be more connected than ever, but in some ways we are more disconnected than ever. On average, Children eight and older are in front of some kind of screen eight, seven to eight hours a day. Whether it's a television screen or a computer or a smartphone. Now please don't get me wrong. I am not against technology. I, the fact that I can talk to my son every week on Skype in Bogota, Colombia is a blessing. The fact that I can talk to, every week to my son and daughter-in-law in Oslo, Norway is a blessing. I am not against these things. And I have an iPad. Pastor Linda made me buy an iPad. She said, it's time you move into the 21st century. I'm sick of this. You need something besides a phone. But still, what is, according to a 2012 Pew survey, only 35% of kids between the ages of 12 and 17 said they regularly socialize face-to-face. -face. Only one thing, and that's in 2012. Six years later, how much worse is it? 63% said they communicated mostly via text messages, and the average kid 12, six years ago averaged 167 texts a day. 167. I don't have that much to say. A study at Indiana University found that 89% of the subjects experience phantom pocket vibration syndrome. You think your cell phone is vibrating when it's not. How many of you got that? Oh, yeah, okay. As one writer put it, we think we're using our cell phones. But after a while, we need our cell phones. Instead of them serving us, we're serving them. Ask yourself, and he goes down, let me, let me give you a little test here. Do you sleep with your cell phone on your nightstand or in your bed under the pillow? Do your friends or family complain 
that you don't look at them. You're always looking at the screen. Anybody complain about that? Do you, che do you check your phone the first thing in the morning and the last thing at night? Do you feel bummed when you forget to bring your cell phone into the bathroom because you might meet a tech, miss a text or a call? You can't even go to the bathroom without it. Have you practiced the art of secretly texting while maintaining eye contact? Can you look at somebody and just text away with a, someone half a world away and nobody knows it because you're just looking right at them? And do you check your cell phone at business meetings, dinners, evenings with friends? Are you texting and using your cell phone right now during this sermon? Some of you are, I know. By the way, in the last sermon, somebody, Dan Diley, got a text. And he said, what are you doing now? And they said, I'm listening to Woody Dalton preach against texting in church. And the text came from somebody else in church. I get no respect, I tells you. No, you see, we have a problem. Some of us have a tech addiction. Intimacy involves not just shared experience, which, which is you, what you can get on cell phones and iPads and stuff. But real intimacy requires presence. And present doesn't, presence doesn't mean simply having my body in the same room with yours. It requires sustained, focused attention. Real presence demands eye contact. It demands that we look up from our screens and put down our smartphones. Because you see, 90% of communication is in facial expressions and body posture and tone of voice, and you can't get that texting. All that communication and all those de devices and real communication is withering. But I find what really hurts community are the secrets we keep and the walls we hide behind. Most Christians are great at pretending. We pretend to be better than what we are. We pretend to be happier than what we are. We pretend to like people we don't like. We are good at this stuff. Sin causes us to seek hiddenness and isolation. That started, by the way, after the fall in Eden, when Adam and Eve, after they sinned, they hid in the bushes. And guess what? We haven't stopped hiding in the bushes in real community. Real church, real relationships, real koinonia. Sooner or later, we get to the real things that bind us and hurt us and keep us from healing. Sooner or later, in real community, we get to our individual sin is issues. There was, since we have kids in the, I'm, I'm going to not give exactly all the details, but you'll, as adults, you'll figure this out. Psychologist Henry Cloud led a group for inpatients at a hospital who were struggling with life issues. And one of the members of the group was a pastor we'll call Joe. His issue was something that many people have these days, thanks to the internet. He had confessed and prayed over and over through the years, but he was unable to break it. Finally, his desperation and shame were so great that he checked himself into the hospital for help. Going to this group was a part of his program. 
One morning, a nurse told Henry that Joe wasn't coming to the group that day. Henry went to talk with him and discovered that Joe had suffered a relapse the night before. Henry talked him into coming to the group. Members of the group asked Joe if he was okay. He said yes, but he was not too convincing. During previous sessions, Joe had mostly listened to other group members. He was comfortable helping other people, but he didn't want to show too much of his own problem, his own addiction. This morning, though, Henry left Joe no choice. Slowly, painfully, Joe began to allow others to see his sense of shame and failure. He spoke to them about years of shame, standing in the pulpit and being terrified that someone might have seen him where he shouldn't have been the night before, claiming to speak for God when he was the biggest hypocrite in the congregation. And yet for all the pain his behavior caused him, all the shame, he couldn't stop. That's when you got an addiction. You don't have it. It has you. Joe could barely choke out the words. And as he told his story, he stared at the floor. He could not bring himself to look at anybody's face in that circle. Look up at the group, Henry told him. I can't. I'm too ashamed, he said. Look up at the group. I want you to look into the eyes of the people listening to you. You must do this. Fearfully, this broken man raised his head. He looked around the circle And every pair of eyes looking back at him was filled with tears. Every heart ached with pain for his anguish. There was no imputing shame, no condemnation, just compassion. For the first time in his life, Joe was not alone with the brokenness that had paralyzed and crippled his soul for so long. Finally, a few people saw his addiction saw his deformity of soul, yet still chose to be his friends. For the first time, he had others help him, take him to the place of healing where he could never go on his own. In that moment, a man who had taught grace for so long from the pulpit finally tasted it, and it broke him. He wept like a baby. He began to hear the words that were spoken to another crippled soul so long ago, Child, your sins are forgiven you. Henry writes that the heart of Joe's addiction was broken that day. He still had much work to do. He still had a long way to go. There were confessions to make, new habits to be developed. He wasn't finished. But the grace that undermined Joe's shame that day brought healing that would not be reversed. Let me ask you. Who do you show your weaknesses and struggles to? Really? Is there somebody you can say anything to and they will will help you? Who do you ask to pray for your real issues? Who gets to see your real brokenness? Where does sin get named and dealt with with grace? I know it's scary. And discernment about who you share with is critical. You have to be wise about that. And it's natural. It's natural to resist what I'm saying. That's why I'm preaching this, because it's too natural. Maybe you identify with with, uh, Brene Brown. In her book, Daring Greatly, 
she tells of her first visit to a therapist. She finally got so tired of things, she went to a therapist. And she said she looked at the therapist and said, I freaking hate vulnerability. But she said, Brene said, I figured she's a therapist. I'm sure she had tougher cases. Plus, the sooner she knows what she's dealing with, the faster we can get this whole therapy, therapy thing done. She said, I hate uncertainty. I hate not knowing. I can't stand opening myself up to getting hurt or being disappointed by someone. It's excruciating. Vulnerability is complicated, and it's excruciating. Do you know what I mean? The therapist named Diana nodded. Yes, I know vulnerability, she said. I know it well. It's an exquisite emotion. Then she looked up and kind of smiled at Brene as if she was picturing something really beautiful. And Brene said, I said it was excruciating, not exquisite. I hate how it makes me feel. What does it feel like? Like I'm coming out of my skin. Like I need to fix whatever's happening and make it better. And if you can't, then I feel like punching someone in the face. And do you? Of course not. So what do you do? I clean the house like a maniac. I eat huge blobs of peanut butter. I blame people left and right. I make everything around me perfect. Control whatever I can, whether it's nailed down or it's not nailed down. Does some of you resonate with that? You know, I've known, and, and, and through the years, I haven't read this, but it's just an observation. I've counseled with lots of people. And what I've discovered is that people, especially people who grew up in very dysfunctional families and who have endured abuse, physical, sexual, emotional abuse, what I, what I see in them often is an addiction to control. Why? Because things were so out of control when they were kids. Consciously or unconsciously, many people who have been through abuse, they go, when I'm an adult, when I have the power, this will never happen again to me or the people I love. And so guess what? Out of the best of motives, out of the motive for love and safety, you know what they do? They turn into controlaholics. Trying to make life safe. Trying to make sure no one ever hurts hurt them or theirs. And it backfires. Because ultimately, you know what? I mean, there are certain measures, common sense measures we do to make people safe. But ultimately, we cannot make the world safe. It's not possible. It reminds me of the family that was living near L.A. And the school, it was getting more violent in the area. And they said, we're moving out of here. We're going to go where there will be no danger to our children. And so they picked a spot and they moved to Colorado, pristine, beautiful Colorado. And they sent their kids. They picked a high school that had a great record. And they sent their kids to Columbine High. And there they lost one of their children. We cannot control the world. We have to let God control it. We cannot make things safe. At some point, we have to quit trying to control and turn it over and release it. 
and we have to deal with our pain in a different way. Sometimes you have to, you have to face the pain rather than trying to control the world. We pay for our secrets. And often a lot of other people do too who we're trying to protect and make safe. Sin and fear and pain needs to get named and dealt with. And although it's scary, one of the greatest gifts we can ever give to each other is vulnerability. You know, when someone comes to me for counseling and they tell me a secret they've carried all their life, I tell them, this is a privilege that you are trusting me with this. I am honored. It is a gift. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, in confession, the breakthrough in community takes place. If a Christian is in the fellowship of confession with a brother or a sister, he or she will never be alone again anywhere. Or just put it as James said it. Confess your faults one to another so you may be healed. Allow someone to be the funnel of Christ's love and grace in your life. Because you see, every human being carries sins and scars and wounds. Every person here, including the person preaching, and our tendency is to hide from them as if our life depended on it. But the exact opposite is true. Our life depends on coming clean. Our life depends on being vulnerable. Our life depends on being found by God and by his people because there is no healing in hiding. We need each other. Secrecy keeps us trapped in the repetition of sin and shame, which drives us back to our addictions again. You see, koinonia the koinonia of Christ is not for perfect people loving other perfect people. There's nobody here that qualifies. All of us have flaws, and I want you to hear this. All of us have flaws we cannot correct by ourselves. There are places of healing that, that we simply can't get to on our own, even with Jesus' spirit is in us. You see, Jesus gave us three main instruments of healing or transformation. One is the word of God, okay? The truth will set you free. The second is the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ lives in us. We can pray to him. We can bring anything to him. And the third is the body of Christ. And I want you to understand something. There are some things I do not need the Holy Spirit to do in order to obey the Lord. For instance, I, to drive, I do not need the Holy Spirit's help not to drive 100 miles an hour. I can do that on my own. I do not need the Holy Spirit's help to help me resist robbing a bank. I'm not going to do it. No interest at all. But there are some things in terms of changing me I absolutely need the Holy Spirit for. There are temptations, common temptations, that I need the Holy Spirit. I must depend on the Spirit. I must walk in the Spirit. And I can handle those, just me and the Holy Spirit can handle most sins. But there's a third category of sin. We call them addictions. We call them lifelong habits. We call them, you know, whatever it is. And, you know, we call it, and it's wrapped in lifelong shame. And I got news for you. For the vast majority of addictions, for the vast majority of things that bind us and hold us, and we've tried and tried and prayed and prayed and they won't go away, 
You have to use the third tool of the Holy Spirit. You have to use the body of Christ. There are some things that won't be healed unless you use the word and the spirit and the body. Scott Peck wrote, we can have real community or we can have pseudo community. We can pretend or we can enter into the chaos of real relationships. But it's only in the chaos. It's only in the risk taking and the doing the scary things that we grow and the power of some of our sins are broken and we are healed. Deep oneness with others. You know, when, when people say, I, we, they read this prayer, I pray that they'll be one as we are one. And we think, well, what, what most people think is we won't fight with each other and that we'll agree on all doctrine together and every thought. That's not what Jesus is getting at here. The deep oneness is what I just talked about, that we share our lives with someone in the body of Christ in order to truly be free and healed. As John Vanier wrote, a community is not simply a group of people who live together or even love each other. Real community is a place of resurrection. Some, like I said, some sins I can handle. Some temptations I need the Spirit. In fact, the most of the temptations I have, I need the Holy Spirit. But there are some things I need the Spirit and the Word, and I need you to break. And it will never be broken as long as things stay secret and isolated. That's what the devil wants. He wants you to live in the dark. But God has called us to come and live in the light. And living in the light is walking in the word, walking in the spirit, and walking with somebody you can share all of your life with. I know it's scary, but do you want to be free? Do you want to be free? So I'm going to ask you again. Who do you show your weaknesses and struggles to? Who do you ask to pray for your real issues? Who gets to see your real brokenness? Where does sin get named and dealt with in grace? Or here's the real options. Do you want to be free? Or do you want to look good living in your personal private prison? Do you want to be healed? Or do you want to hide in the bushes and think you're safe when in reality you're not safe at all? That's the question. That's the question for us all. We are here as the body of Christ. And I'd like you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want you to ask the Spirit to bring someone to your mind, especially if you have no friend, no, especially if you have no one or no relationship of any depth. I want you to ask God to lead you to someone here in the silence.
Lord, set us free and help us to do what it takes to be free. We sang earlier, you made a way. But often, Lord, we resist the way because it's scary or it's painful. But you made a way, Lord. Help us to follow what you have given us. The truth, the power of the Holy Spirit, and for those really, really tough chains we cannot get rid of, the addictions of our, our secret addictions. Lord, you gave us the body of Christ too. Help us, Lord, to break out of our prisons this morning and to do whatever it takes, including trusting another human being. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, I do need to say that there needs to be discernment. You can't just walk up to anyone. There needs to be discernment. But there are plenty of people in this church who I think can help you find freedom. I'd like the worship team to come up.